Our scripture reading this evening, upon which our uh, sermon is based, comes to us from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to 12. It's printed in your order of worship. It's also in your pew Bibles as well. Let's give our attention to God's word. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down like his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we ask now that as we turn to your word, that you would stir our hearts, that we would be attentive to your voice, that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. We pray this all in his mighty name. Amen. You know, it is an odd thing, uh, a rare occurrence when Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day fall on the same day. And it's just weird. I find it weird. At least with the modern iteration of Valentine's Day, they are so very different in their themes, in their messages, in their colors, right? Valentine's Day is uh, about love and it's celebratory and pink is its color, maybe red, and it's meant for joy. And Ash Wednesday is sobering and black and meant for repentance and reflection on the cross and the death of Jesus. And I would imagine some of you are here tonight are relieved that this occurrence is happening because it helps you escape the tyranny of Valentine's Day. (laughs) So you have something to go to. Others of you, you brave souls, are going to try and do the rare double, the Ash Wednesday service followed by the Valentine's Day dinner. I don't think you're going to make a seven o'clock reservation. I probably not, unless I move us through this rather quickly. But the difference between these two days isn't really about 
uh, substance. It's not even really about subjects because, in fact, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day in some ways are both about love. Their different, difference lies in the degree, the depth, and the intensity of which they tackle the topic and the reality of love. See, Ash Wednesday is about love as well. It's just far deeper than what we find or what we talk about or how we celebrate Valentine's Day. See, Ash Wednesday reminds us of a promise. And the promise is this, that God loves you too much to leave you alone. That's what Ash Wednesday is about. God loves you way too much to leave you to yourself. No, no matter how much we long to go our own way, no matter how much we want to plot our own path, no matter how much we want to discover our own potential or how much we want to fight our own battles, he will not leave us alone because he loves us. He will not leave you alone because he loves you. That's what we gather here tonight to consider. All of this, the table of the Lord's Supper, the ashes on our forehead, the prayers we offer, the songs we sing, our texts and our passage this evening. All of it to keep this promise in front of us that God loves you and that God lo God's love for us takes him all the way to a cross to bear the weight of our shame, to suffer the guilt of our rebellion and to receive the penalty for our sin. And he does all that to rescue you and to restore you because he loves you. That's what's happening here in Isaiah 58. We see God rising up and promising to rescue his people. And in so doing, he's, going to, he's promising to rescue the world. And we see God's love on display as he restores and pursues his people. Because he loves us. He loves us too much to leave us to ourselves. And so what I want to look at ever so briefly this evening in Isaiah 58 is what's going on here is we see that God has coming to restore our relationship, to restore our mission, and to restore our glory. I want to look at those three things uh, this evening. First, God comes to restore our relationship. This passage begins with God speaking and commissioning Isaiah once again to deliver a message to Israel. Now, for just a, a little bit of background, what's going on here at this time in Israel's history, the, the northern kingdom of Israel has been carried off into exile. And Isaiah's ministry has been to preach to the southern kingdom. This is where Jerusalem is. And his ministry has been to preach repentance, to call Israel to repentance so that they don't go off into exile as their neighbors in the north have already gone. And so Isaiah has been begging them on behalf of God to repent of their idolatry and their sin and for them to return to their God who loves them. But they are not listening. And therefore, they are in danger of going into exile themselves. And so once again, God summons Isaiah to speak these words of rebuke. They're harsh words, but they're also words of restoration. Listen again to verse 1. This is God speaking to Isaiah, giving Isaiah the message that he's now going to send and tell to Israel. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. See, there's an urgency in God's voice and in his heart for the people of Israel. But notice even in this verse how God talks about Israel. He says, declare to my people, my people, their transgression. This is God once again acting as a jealous husband, pursuing his bride. These are his people. He loves them. And in his rebuke, as he reveals their sin, which he does here in these verses, he's doing it because he loves them. Then in verses 2 through 5, we learn more about the specific sin and rebellion that God wants to expose. Israel has become a nation of hypocrites 
because they have turned the gifts that God has given them, gifts like worship, gifts like rest, like Sabbath, gifts like fasting, into a means both to exploit God but also to exploit their neighbors. The interesting thing here is that Israel is actually trying to dwell with God. They're actually seeking him out. Verse 2 says that they think they're delighting to draw near to him. And yet they're left wondering, why doesn't God not see them? Why isn't he answering us? Where is he? And God's point is this. Oh, I do see you. I see what you're doing. I see the way you oppress people. I see the way you quarrel and fight and use violence while invoking my name. I see your hearts and I see your actions. And this is not what I've called you to be. This is not who I've called you to be. This is not what I've called you to do. And so the irony of these first few verses is that Israel is wanting and, and, they're cra- and they're craving God's attention. But now they have it. But it's not because of their piety. It's not because of their righteousness. It's not because of their holiness. It's not because they're keeping the laws. It's because of their sin. Now they have his attention. And they've become a people who exist only for themselves. And this is the accusation that God makes against them in verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. In other words, even as Israel seeks God in form and in ritual, their hearts are far from him. And therefore, they, the way they treat others now follows that form. But God loves them too much to leave them to themselves. And so even as he lays down these charges against them, even as he sends Isaiah to cry aloud and to speak judgment, he does, he does it to rescue his people. Even as he exposes, he's restoring their relationship to him. And see, this is why we gather together here this, tonight on Ash Wednesday. We come to hear this promise that God loves us too much to leave us alone. And by his grace and love for us, he comes to restore our relationship to him, which means that we can be honest about our own sin, the ways that we have lived for ourselves, the hypocrisy that marks our own lives, and how we all too often see God on our own terms rather than on his. But perhaps the more astonishing thing about God's promise not to leave us alone is that God doesn't stop with Isaiah. Did you notice in that first verse, God tells Isaiah to cry aloud, don't hold back. In other words, do whatever it takes. Whatever you have to do to get their attention, do whatever it takes to rescue them. And as we will learn as the history of Israel unfolds, as God's history of redemption unfolds, what it takes is not simply a shouting prophet. It's going to take a suffering son. It will, in the end, be God himself, sending his only son not just to shout and not just to proclaim, but also to suffer and to die in order for God to finally restore the world to himself. In Jesus, we see a God holding nothing back. In Jesus, we see God drawing even closer and refusing to leave us alone. I mean, Jesus comes to his people that have continued to ignore him, continued to oppress their neighbors, continued to search for God, but on their own terms. And Jesus shows up and he holds nothing back. And so he not only teaches, he not only heals, he not only leads, he not only blesses, he not only comforts, he not only serves, but ultimately he dies on a cross so that we would be restored to him. So tonight I want you to consider, I want you to consider the depths that God has gone to to restore you. Consider his love for you as he comes to restore you, even as he calls you and he calls us to repentance. He's holding nothing back. 
See, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, if he didn't withhold his very own son, if he hasn't withheld his son, how will he not also give us all things? How will he not also continue to show up and to rescue us? See, God loves you too much to leave you alone. So God comes to restore us, restore us to himself, but also God comes to restore our mission. God comes to restore our purpose in the world. Here, as God sends Isaiah to confront Israel, he also restores them to his work in the world. And he invites Israel to participate in his mission. So in verses 6 and 7, God reminds Israel how they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Listen again to verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In essence, God is saying, don't you remember what I taught you? Don't you remember who I called you to be? Don't you remember what I've done for you? Don't you remember your own story? You've forgotten it all. See, it's important to remember that what Isaiah lays out here in 6 and 7 in these verses was not anything new to Israel. This isn't new information. This had been their purpose, their identity, their mission. From the very beginning when God called Abram and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you so you will be a blessing to the nations. They were to be about the world around them. They were to be for their neighbors. And this was laid out in the laws of God. It was celebrated in their annual feasts. And it was embedded in their daily practices as a nation. That Israel, as God's people, were supposed to work for the flourishing of one another and their neighbors. And therefore, they were to address issues of injustice and inhumanity and inequality, which are all there in verse 6. And they were not only to address those issues, but they were, worked, they were to work to alleviate those burdens by living lives of hospitality and generosity and sacrifice. But not only was this the purpose given to them by God as God's people, but it was also part of their story. It's like the main part of their story. Because this is what God had done for them in freeing them from the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt. When God delivered Israel in the Exodus, he broke their yoke of captivity. He set them free. He fed them in the wilderness. And he gave them a home, a land in which to dwell. They were already recipients of God's rescue, of his justice, and his generosity. And so now here, as God reminds them in verses 6 and 7 about the purpose of fasting, he's reminding them of what he's come to do and inviting them to return, to join him in his work in the world. And so the same is true for us. God has promised to enter into the dark places of the world and to deliver and rescue the poor, to rescue the lost, the overlooked, the powerless, the voiceless, the nameless, the storyless. This is what he's about, and that's what he wants his people to be about as well. And because God loves us too much to leave us alone, he's constantly calling his people back. Out of our obsession with comfort, out of our obsession with control over our lives and into his harrowing, beautiful, uh, lovely mission and restoring us to participate in his, in his work. And that is also what is happening here tonight. On Ash Wednesday, as we turn our attention to the cross of Christ and consider his death on our behalf, we also take up this call to keep our cro his cross always before us and now to follow him into the darkness of the world. This means that we are always giving ourselves to take up his call upon our lives 
and to leave our own paths and pursuits of glory, our own pursuits of self-preservation and self-indulgence. These things that blind us to the needs of others and return once again to follow God into the world as he brings his healing light and life to us and to our neighbors. So tonight we take up this beautiful call to lay down our lives, to lay down our agendas, to lay down our plans for the sake of one another and for the sake of our neighbors and for the sake of the oppressed and the poor. And we do this not only because this is God's mission for the world, but because we have been recipients of his mission to rescue us. Remember, Jesus has come to loose the bonds of wickedness that enslave us. Jesus has come to set us free. He's come to break the yoke of your sin, of my sin and death that weigh us down. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other plan. There's no other mission for you than this, to receive God's promise of his life and healing and then to bear that healing to the world through his son Jesus by the power of his spirit. That's what we get to be part of. And guess what our message is? Guess what our message is to our neighbors? Guess what our message is to our coworkers and to our friends and to our family? In our words and in our actions, we humbly and hopefully proclaim this message of Lent. That God loves you too much to leave you to yourself. He's come to restore you. And here we are. So God comes to restore our relationship. He comes to restore our mission. And lastly, he comes to restore our glory. Now, to participate in God's mission, you just look at verses 6 and 7 and dwell on it for a moment. And to restore to it means that we have renounced false gods like comfort and control that we've, and we're going to now face the world's brokenness. Whether this is spiritual darkness or broken systems and institutions or destructive practices or false gods, all of which, again, are kind of at play in, in, uh, in Isaiah and certainly in Isaiah 58. And to do that seems impossible and simply is impossible no matter how smart or effective or strategic or powerful we might be. But the beautiful part of this passage in verses 8 through 11 is that God promises to be there for Israel as they enter into his mission. See, as they leave their idolatry, as they leave their pride, as they leave their self-centeredness of verses 1 through 5, they actually receive what they were longing for. Remember, they wanted God, God's presence. They wanted him to dwell with them, but they just couldn't figure out why he wasn't there. And now as they realign themselves with God's mission, this is what he's promising. Verse 8, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Verse 9, you'll cry out to the Lord and God will say, here I am. See, God is promising to be with them to draw near to them, to dwell with them, to commune with them, and to, and, to, and to equip them. See, it's only as we leave our agendas and participate in his beautiful work to restore the world and give ourselves for the sake of our neighbors, and only when we see that we are completely incapable in our own power to do any of this, then do we see and experience God's presence. Then do we see and experience his power at work in us, his power that works in spite of us, his power that works through us. And because God is with us, as he promised to be with Israel, we now are restored to glory. Remember, the Bible tells us that all of us, every man, woman, and child, has been made in the image of God. And because of that, we have been crowned with unspeakable glory. It's the glory in our faces, the glories of our bodies, the glories of our minds, the glories of our labors. 
but we sinned and we exchanged God's glory for lesser glories. That's what's happening here in Israel. That's what's happened to us. But God has come now to restore our glory. And the image of these verses, as God promised in verse 10, that their light will rise in the darkness. And verses 11 and 12, that they shall be a watered garden like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail, and their ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. So what God is reminding Israel, and what we need to hear as well, is this. That this, this call, this mission to be God's people in the world, this is what we were made for. You were made to do just this. This is what the church following the way of the cross does. We are most ourselves. We are most glorious when we are following God into the world to work for its redemption. And this is the promise he makes, but it's also the source of our hope. Because just as like with the restored relationship, just uh, in, in the same way with our restored mission, now in our restored glory, God does not hold back. He has come in Jesus to pour himself out for us, to satisfy our desires in his life and his death. In his ministry on earth, he was the well-watered garden with life flowing forth from him. And even now, he is at work by his spirit through his church, pouring forth life and turning ruins into glory. And he does it for your sake. He does it for our sake so that we would be restored to glory. Ash Wednesday is a reminder of what God has done and is doing through his son, Jesus. He has come to restore us to himself. He has come to restore our mission. And he has come to restore our glory. God loves you too much to leave you to yourself. He loves you too much to leave you in your sin. He loves you too much to leave you in your darkness. He loves you too much to leave you, leave you in your grief. And he loves you too much to leave you in your sorrow. God holds nothing back in order to bring life to you and to the world. He's gone to the cross for you. That's the love that we celebrate tonight. That's why we're here. So let the mark of your forehead, let the meal at this table, let the words of Isaiah, and let the very cross of Jesus remind you as we move into Lent that God loves you way too much to ever leave you alone. Let's pray. Oh God, the glory and the wonders of your love which we see this night as we contemplate the cross of your Son and our Savior Jesus. The depths of your love knows no bounds. And so we pray, oh God, that you would restore us as you have promised to do in your Son Jesus. Restore us once again to yourself as you expose us of our sin and our brokenness, of our own self-satisfaction just like you did Israel. Oh, might you restore us to yourself. And then might you send us into your mission to renew the world. And even as we find that to be such an overwhelming call, may we see it as the only way, as the glory we are longing for. And may we experience, as you promised to Israel, as we cry out that we would hear your words, here I am. You are always with us, our rear God, our rear guard, our delight, and our hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.